Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, actor, director, producer, any of those folks, and we talk in-depth about one of their fave genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm real excited to have writer-director-producer Katie Tabaldi here. Hi! Hey, thanks for having me. For those of you who are um, you know, not familiar with Katie's work, please let me give you an introduction. First, Katie was my best friend in first grade. It's true. No joke. <laughs> and then she moved away yeah. and I never saw her or heard from her again. And I cried for days. You can ask my mother. <laughs> she was like, oh, wow, you were just heartbroken. Because I was like, I'm never going to find a new best friend. I know. The internet wasn't what it is It now. wasn't. And, you know, honestly, I didn't have a new best friend until I was in high school. So it was a very <laughs> long period of time without you. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we hooked up uh, last year when we realized that we had taken similar paths in life. Yeah, most small world Twitter, like, reconnect ever in my life. Yeah, so now we get to have her on the show because Katie um, moved to New York. Um, She earned her MFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts as a dramatic writing uh, department scholarship recipient and graduated with a double thesis in both film and television writing. She's worked for NBC, CBS, ABC, Showtime, MTV Networks, TBS, the NBA, New York University, Sony Pictures, and as the manager for the Traverse City Film Festival, Traverse City Winter Comedy Arts Festival, and Doc NYC. Katie's film work includes the award-winning feature documentary Courting Condi and the award-winning film series We the Voters, 21 Films for the People. Between working on shows such as Broad City, Nurse Jackie, and Damages, she's already worked on over 300 episodes of television, so you are very busy. She's currently producing the documentary feature Street Fighting Men, which will be distributed by First Run Features later this year. Her work on that made her a 2016 Sundance Institute Doc Fellow. She's also co-producer on True TV's Emmy-nominated comedy series At Home with Amy Sedaris. She recently directed the independent half-hour comedy pilot Ian, or sorry, Ian, <laughs> Ian owes you, and that had its world premiere at the New York Television Festival in July. She is also the writer, director, and executive producer of Seeking Sublet, a comedy series with nine full episodes debuting later this year. The series has been showcased by Movie Maker Magazine. Script Magazine, Tumblr, and Funny or Die, and she's done a bunch of other stuff, too. (laughs) So, Katie, the movie that you chose to talk about today is a beloved one in my household. It is What We Do in the Shadows. Yeah. Genius. Can can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to pick that one? I mean, it's just one of my favorite films, truly, of the last, like, 10 years. Um, I think it's a pretty perfect comedy. I Mm -hmm. feel like... It really leans into characters and jokes uh, and the funny first, putting the funny first, which Mm -hmm. is how I try to direct comedy of like, let's have the best script possible and then let's try stuff. And if people have things, let's do some fun takes and see what happens. And I feel like you can really feel that when you watch it. Um, And it melds genre, classic genre of vampire stuff in a really seamless way with the comedy. And so yeah. there are parts that are very bloody mm-hmm. and, and disgusting and terrible. And it has a kind of filmic no- knowledge of vampire films as well. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's something that you could hear and be like, oh, well, that's not going to be good. But like, just because vampires have been so done and I mean, the mockumentary like style, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of all the way back from like Spinal Tap, Christopher Guest, and yeah, then for sure. Office, all of that. But it's so I just yeah I love that they lean into the bloodiness of it and the genre but also the vampires all have heart like it's like they give them each their own stereotype and then you see that they each have this like softness to them Mm -hmm. which I just love that meld of like comedy and heart which I feel like is not done enough yeah sometimes it just feels like it's a New Zealand thing that they're just like oh are they just nicer I know (laughs) um So for those of you who haven't seen what we do in the shadows, today's episode will obviously give you some spoilers, but that should not stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch what we do in the shadows first, this is your chance. And now that you're back, let me introduce What We Do in the Shadows. Written and directed by Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi, What We Do in the Shadows stars both actors as vampire roommates Vladislav and Viago, who share a flat in Wellington with young rebel Deacon and the ancient Peter. Is Peter coming? Should we be good? Peter's 8,000 years old. We're not going to have Peter at the meeting. Okay, so 
I wanted to have a quick chat about flat responsibilities because, uh, guys, I think that we're not all pulling our weight here. We're not just pointing the finger at you, Deacon. You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat. Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool. Since they have to stay in the flat all day while the sun is out, they are wildly out of step with the cultures and people of the modern day and spend their nights going to whatever lame clubs will let them in. Deacon's human familiar Jackie is annoyed that she has to keep running errands for these vampires because Deacon refuses to bite and turn her, leaving her with her dull husband and children who are just terrible. One night, Jackie leads her ex Nick to the flat so the vampires can feed. He escapes, but Peter turns him into a vampire Vampire, further humiliating Jackie because her ex is now the vampire that she wants to be. They just keep piling on the humiliations. The vampires accept Nick into their crew and also befriend his human buddy, Stu, a computer <laughs> programmer. Nick's careless with his vampire secrets, however. Twilight! Shut up, Nick! You're not Twilight. It's your problem. You, you are my problem. Telling the world that we are vampires and brags to someone at the bar that turns out to be a vampire hunter who then breaks into the flat and kills Peter. <laughs> Nick's banished from the flat. The vampires all get an invitation to a big masquerade ball. Everyone's there, including Vladislav's ex, the Beast, who's been hyped up to be some crazy, ter terrible yeah. vampire, but it's just this woman. Just that, pretty, yeah, yeah, feisty woman. Yeah, who spurned him. Hello, Beast. Hello, asshole. When the partygoers realize Stu and the camera crew are human, they attack. Vladislav begins fighting the beast's new boyfriend, and Stu aids him by impaling the guy in the heart with a wooden pole. We should probably go, Stu. It was great to see you, Pauline. Asshole. The group of friends all escape together, but unfortunately encounter some antagonistic werewolves about to transform. Stu and a camera guy are caught, so the group assumes they're dead and mourns. But Stu shows up a few weeks later with his new werewolf buds. Stu! Hey, Deacon. And gets the werewolves and vampires to become friends. We thought, oh, they're just going to urinate on everything. But uh, they're actually really polite. Vladislav gets back together with the beast. Nick moves back into the flat. And Viago turns his one true love, who is now an octogenarian. Oh. <laughs> also, Jackie does finally get to become a vampire. She does, yeah. yeah. And her husband has has to be subservient to her. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's you know a good turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we should start with how long it took between the short and the feature to get made, because this is a feature that um, was based on a short film of the same title, I believe. Yeah. Um, and. They had come up with the idea long, long before, you know, like the, the short was made many years before. Um, and it took them nine years to make this movie, they said. Um, and they, Taiko Waititi said, in 2005, we thought of the idea. And I don't know when we first started writing anything, probably about four years later. We did the short straight away when we had the idea. And then they ended up not at getting anything like they yeah. people loved the short yeah. but it just took so long to finally come together and the short was also made on a zero budget yes you know like they they borrowed a bunch of friends things they had no one on crew it was just them kind of improvising on set yeah, I know even the feature, uh, they like the, you know, country of New Zealand helped fund the film. Oh, so. yeah. And I know like that I recently read the exterior of the house that you see as their house is Peter Jackson's production company. Yeah, which in New I Zealand, thought was so. wonderful. He was so I was not even thinking about that. But throughout the interviews, they keep talking about how kind he was. Yeah. And helping this film get made, which is really wonderful that he's been supportive. You yeah. Know, so, you know, support the entire New Zealand film industry, essentially. For sure. And I think the way that I've read that Taika and Jermaine write um, is, you know, they all have they have their own projects going on separately and then they also like to write together. So I'm sure it was just hard, like finding the timing, finding the funding, yeah. knowing the short was successful and like wanting to make the film be the best it could be. So I'm sure it was like all those factors together. Well, I mean, at that time, like Jermaine was working with Brett yep. on Flight of the Concords and they were performing yep. quite a bit before they even got their HBO show. 
And I know that Brett helped inform some of the things that they wrote <laughs> yeah. for this, even though he's focused on music now. Right. But um, so, yeah, it seems like a, a more collective idea of how they worked together on writing it. Yeah. And I don't know if there was like, I don't know what their situation was. Like the fact that Taika is, you know, one of the main characters and I think like my favorite character in it. Um him being one of the main characters on camera, he hadn't really done as much on camera for like yeah. a feature, so that may have been something too. And most of the actors were like, especially outside of New Zealand, like other than Jermaine, you wouldn't necessarily know. And and Reese Darby, I guess, who's like head of the werewolves. Yeah. I'm the alpha male. Yeah. So generally, all the other guys follow me. He also came from Concords. Light of the Concords too. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about one particular character at length. Yeah. Stu. I was saying to my friend last night, like, I want to get a shirt that's just like Stu's like face with one of his quotes because he's just the best. He's just so cute. And I love the story of Stu being in the movie that we should tell people yeah. about uh, that Stu was Jemaine's roommate or flatmate um, yeah. back in the day when they were making the short. He's an IT guy. He's still <laughs> an IT life. guy. Yeah. Yeah. And that um, he was just there and he noticed that they had no crew when they were making the short. So he's like, do you want me to carry things? And (laughs) they slowly started kind of putting him in because Taika really liked how it looked with just like a totally normal person standing next to these frilly vampires. Yeah. And I I love that story that, you know, they just kept tricking him into being in the frame and never told him how integral he was to the story. Yeah. Well, in the way that like, I mean, it's so great in the feature, particularly because, you know, everyone loves Stu and no one can stand Nick. Yeah. Who's like Nick is best friends with Stu and that's how he first introduced the vampires to him and the fact that yeah most of the times they would have eaten stew because he was a human yeah but they're just like stew's the best he connects us with the internet and i mean (laughs) that's what i love about the film too is like it's such a good medium for poking fun at bro culture which i feel like they really do so geniusly because it's like here's guys who are stuck from sort of different worlds they Mm -hmm. were born into different times and because of being vampires can only exist like at certain times of day and you know don't know anything about technology until really Stu comes (laughs) into their life and connects them with like tv and internet and things like modern phones and yeah um it does just present this sort of like constant um someone who doesn't evolve and it's just like really immature which is these group of kind of pack of guys living together yeah it's i mean it it becomes a very very astute critique yeah of like never evolving yeah um and i'm curious you know in the work that you've done you know you've you've done a range from documentary to comedy but do you feel um that working with some non-actors like a stew can be you know is it good? Is it hard? I mean, I think it can be great. Um, I've had some experiences doing the same, and I think, um, or actors who maybe are like not used to doing TV and film, maybe they just do improv, which can be totally different, like when yeah. you're actually filming. But yeah, having someone who's particularly grounded in a real job in the way that Stu is, which is like he really works in IT and is a quieter guy, it just adds another layer to the work, I think, which is just like grounded in realness, which I think this film does in general. It's like they each have their own stereotypes, but because they have to navigate life mm-hmm. uh, as vampires, there are just things that like they don't know how to do that they're trying to figure out, and just the day to day things of still living. It's like yeah, they're vampires, but they live together, and they are all very different. And so you know, it's like Tyka's character wants everything to be clean, and this like getting mad at his roommates for not doing the dishes for mm-hmm. five years, and putting down. Can't you just put down newspaper when before you <laughs> bite into someone's neck and spray? Even when he does it, then it still sprays everywhere, yeah. and like I. I love that because it makes it relatable for everyone, despite the fact that they're vampires, which also for me in that genre, like it's just by far my favorite vampire like take on things because it's like they lean into the vampire stuff, but also make it grounded in like real life. Yeah, I I think the, the Stu thing, there's one particular scene with him where um, he's explaining what he does, like <laughs> IT to a woman. And apparently, you know, Taika just told him, like, just tell her what you do. Mm-hmm. Just go. I work for a company that does, um, basically, we take, like, business requirements from organizations and we um, analyze those requirements and then we build software. When they yelled cut, um, the woman was like, 
oh god that sounds so boring when you just kill yourself if you had to do that and he had to be like that's actually that's that's what i do yeah that's (laughs) what i do day to day yeah that's great i've had similar things where i've had um like my web series is about, you know, two roommates constantly trying to find their third roommate. And it's based on a lot of things in my real life, which is like having some great roommates, having some terrible roommates. And so almost every episode is like a new person that they're living with. And yes, yeah. one episode is someone who's a stand up and um, just like them wanting her to be on all the time and perform for them. So there's a scene where I did some improv and I just said to them, like, say things that you wish you could like say to a stand up when you're trying to get them to perform or giving critique on it but you would never actually say to their face yeah and it was great because people could really just like lean into like all the things you want to say but don't get to say in a way that's still grounded because you have to be in it you can't just be like here's lines that are jokes you know like here's a way if you actually had someone in front of you instead of having the reverse heckle i guess like yes i and you know uh, let's maybe get into some of the stuff where we've got um the the scripting that they did and the improv kind of butting up against each other. Yeah. Um, there's a scene which everyone knows. You know, it's uh, we're werewolves, not swearwolves. Hey, don't swear. Sorry, they they yeah. we're, we're werewolves, not swearwolves. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. No, it's, it's a very to offensive Anton. word it's to call people. So the one thing that they did right was that line, the werewolves, yeah. not swearwolves. That's the one thing. And then they kind of peppered some other words like we were just like, here are words that you can say, you know. But all of the insults, everything, they just – it was all improv and, yeah. and, you know, you can – you can kind of tell, but it's also quite good improv. It is. is the thing. You can feel it build off each other, too, like, which really plays into the werewolf thing of, like, the pack mentality. Because yeah. it's like you hear one person and then that's like, ooh, okay, now it's making another person comfortable to say, like, an insult that maybe they were afraid to say before and now are just going to throw out, which yes. is really great. The, um, having your id kind of take the lead. Yeah. Which is interesting. You've got... Um, like the werewolves have their id, but Taika Waititi's character is so wonderful because he's so tame. Like he's yeah. still kind of holding all of that back. And he's a dandy, as they call him in the movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he has that sort of like he likes things a certain way and he, he does have a soft, kind heart. You know, the fact that he was in love with this woman and tried to get to her and then his casket got sent to the wrong place. And by the time he got to her, she had already met someone else and was getting married. And sure, he could have killed her and made her a vampire, but he wanted her to be happy, which is like, again, that kind of heart I was talking about. And I think what I really admire about their work and what I try to do when I direct, especially comedy, is like just allow the actors the freedom to try things because I think that's such a huge thing of like, I'm also a good audience. So, like, if things make me really laugh, I'm the person behind the camera, like, holding it in where when I call take, the actors start laughing because I'm, you know, laughing. So it's like... You're not the one who's like, oh, that was funny. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) I've even had one of my actors be like, seriously, you have to, like, look away because you're making me laugh too much in the scene. Because I just have such great respect for actors, like, who are... You know, it's such a thing where you're putting yourself out there, and um, I think a lot of people don't give them enough credit. Like, if you're really working with great actors, like, see what they can bring to the table, and also just create an environment that's like, we can try stuff, and if it fails, it's fine. Yeah. Because that's a huge thing. Is that, do you literally say that to them? Or they I do, just yeah. Okay. I'm like, you know... Not And I've actually heard a lot of people I admire, like Paul Feig says that, you know, like sometimes he'll do like 20 takes and it's not because he needs to do 20 takes. Sometimes it's just getting the actors to a place where they're like, wow, I've tried everything and Mm -hmm. he's not stopping me. So like this thing I've really been holding back on that maybe seems really silly, I'm just going to go for. And I do think it's really important because even when I used to act, you know, it's you want to do a good job. You want to like. I think also nice to have some laughter from a director because you're getting that immediate audience response. Yeah. Like I see that even with Amy on our show a lot. It's like we always wish we could have a live audience because she thrives so much off of like getting that audience reaction. So she always says like I want to win the crew over or, you know, like I'll have to tell the crew like you can laugh like loud. She actually likes it. Like you don't have to like hold back your laugh. And so I just try to create that environment where it's like, 
you see that I'm enjoying things and you can just try whatever. And I'm going to sometimes throw out jokes that are like totally not going to work. And that's fine, too. So they know you're like in it with them. Yeah. And um, just knowing that, like, I'm always going to put forth what's the best version of it. And so you can just trust that and just try stuff. Um, you're tapping into something that uh, I think that we should talk a little bit more about after the break. And that is doing a ton of takes, potentially too many. Yeah. But we'll see. Uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll come right back. Good morning, class. Good morning, Ms. Banks. Can anyone tell me which holiday is coming up? This major holiday celebrates giving and artistic expression. Max Fun Drive! That's right, kids. It's Max Fun Drive. And when do we celebrate? March 18th through March 29th. Very good, Billy. Now, who can tell us the story of Max Fun Drive? I know. Me, me, me. (laughs) All right, Trisha. Once a year, the pod fairy comes to town and hands out cool enamel pins of your favorite podcast. They're so effing cool. Whoa, yes, yes, Trish. But there's more to the Max Fun Drive holiday than cool pins. Max Fun Drive is the time of year when all around the world, people put aside their differences and focus on the spirit of family, friends, community, and podcasts. Oh, okay, class. Don't forget to listen to your favorite podcast from March 18th to 29th. I'll expect full pod reports when you're back. (sighs) I have got to ask someone why these classes are only 45 seconds long. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Katie Tabaldi, and we are talking about what we do in the shadows. Um, Okay, so... Uh, this movie, like we were saying, is definitely a lot of improv, but uh, I want to share some quotes from Jemaine and Taika about the process because they're also directing themselves as they're in it, which is so hard while doing improv, (laughs) right? So it's just like keeping it all together. Exactly. So Jemaine said those scenes were pretty long. And this is him talking about the werewolves specifically. So there's a lot of people, a lot of players, a lot of improv. They went on. Basically, for those of you don't, who don't know, the whole film's improvised, so those scenes with the werewolves went on for about 10 minutes longer than they should have. And it took hours and hours just to shoot everything because we do 15 takes or something. And no one knew when to say cut. We would look <laughs> at each other and go, we're in character. Okay, keep going. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, Taika said, I think I wrote that in the script um, for the swearwolves thing. We also gave them a list of insults they could call us as we're walking past, so we wouldn't really give them the script. We just gave them a list of things they could say, and then they could throw that, their own as well. Often they'd be the only ones we'd end up using. So I think that's an interesting thing where a lot of the stuff that they were writing as well never even made it in. Yeah. And then uh, they just let people kind of riff on it. And yeah. that's what they ended up enjoying maybe a yeah. little bit more. I mean, you have to have a really good editor, I would say. It's like first and foremost because it's a lot to comb through. But they, also, I mean, they spent a year editing this. We'll talk about that later. But Yeah, but also as you're shooting to have the wherewithal that, like I said, sometimes your best stuff is going to be at the end where people feel the freest. And also just to get through like versions kind of maybe you know may go a certain way, especially yeah. when you're doing improv. But that has to be so frustrating, though, because you go into it and you know that it's not going be maybe what you want it to be until the 20th fucking take right i mean i'll say sometimes for me i always like to get scripted takes and then always do what i call like fun takes which is like just try stuff or if i see something that an actor's doing that just really appeals to me i'm like ooh, we're gonna just do something with that and sometimes i just will know like uh especially if you're on a tight timeline that's the hardest part is planning time-wise having time to improv a lot Mm -hmm. um i always say that to my ad when i'm planning like i need i can make things happen in a short amount of time if needed but i need time to really like play with the actors that's really important and so yeah it can be hard because sometimes it might be that 20th take but sometimes you'll know like you'll have a take and you're like that's it that's the one i'm gonna use um and that's like the best feeling it's like a total adrenaline rush just to feel like everyone was able to come together in the moment and um have something happen and i think it's really important especially if you're gonna be doing 
doing improv to always have grounded characters within it um, and have people, I always say to like actors, I don't need everyone to be like the funniest person in the room, you know, like I need people to be grounded that the audience can relate to. But that's, I mean, everyone wants to be the funniest person. It's hard. Which is one of the reasons why I fucking love Stu again. Yes. Because his his whole direction, they were, people were asking him like, so how did you decide to act? And he was like, well, um, most of the time, uh, if I didn't couldn't figure out anything to say, I would just be quiet. And mm-hmm. they ended up thinking that that was the funniest thing. Where totally. It's just like, I'm just the quiet one who doesn't say anything. Yeah, and I've had the same thing with, with stuff I've done where people are like, they really relate to the grounded characters and sure they love the jokes of some of the others, but if you didn't have those, like it just wouldn't work. And I think you could point to a lot of examples of that, certainly in TV too, like Parks and Rec or... Um, even like I, I heard a conversation with Jim Burroughs on Will and Grace saying like if the show was just Jack and Karen like it wouldn't be watchable even though they're so funny you need people to like ground the show because yeah. yes it makes it relatable it also makes it more like if you just feel like people are doing bits all day it's just not for me that's not enjoyable yeah it's tiring yeah <laughs> it gets old <laughs> it gets old do you does Amy Sedaris improvise when she's doing... She does improvise, yeah. Most of it's scripted um, very meticulously, but she, especially doing crafts and cooking stuff on her show, she'll yeah. improv. Baking a potato seems relatively simple, but should you wrap it in fold? Rub it with lard? I prefer placing it on a hot rack right after stabbing it with a fork repeatedly, like you might a hairdresser who cut your bangs too short. Or if she you know, has an actor that they're just really like vibing off of each other they'll improv um and certainly like paul or uh danello our co uh, creator of the show with amy who also comes from you know he was in strangers, strangers and yeah. works on colbert as well um he will you know throw out stuff or why don't we try this um so yeah for we always start with a strong script but she'll also just like improv in as the character when she sees fit yeah it has to be scripted because they're like it's she has to pick things up, literally, sure. you know, like it's very do scripted. things physically. So. Yeah, because also every episode of our show is like taking on something very specific. Like this episode's going to be about, I mean, crazy things on our show, which is really fun. But like the, you know, we'll be inspired. We have an episode coming up that's inspired by the film The Birds, and it's like, but it's for Thanksgiving. So we structurally. <laughs> use the birds as like a huge uh, structural inspiration for yeah. it but it's like turkeys um, and goes pretty <laughs> uh, psychotic crazy fun places but having we find like in the room um, Paul's really and Amy really inspired by like finding something that gets you excited about writing it whether it's that or there was a Halloween episode this year where I, I found this old film Eye of the Cat that's about a guy who's like afraid of cats and there's just of uh, some really funny sequences in it that then we were able to there's a woman old woman who's in a wheelchair who starts falling down this hill backwards in san francisco because a cat crosses in front of her and her nephew is deathly afraid of cats (laughs) and so that was a really fun visual to be like it'd be fun to have something where amy's you know careening backwards and then whips around in the wheelchair and forwards and is being you know (laughs) uh, potentially impaled by something so yeah uh, but it's always very meticulously um scripted and amy and paul are so great to watch work together because they've just been working together for decades and so they have such a shorthand. Yeah. But, um, you know, Amy sometimes will have really specific ideas. And then we always say, like, Paul is the person who helps guide chopping the wood, mm-hmm. <laughs> like making it work, which I think is really important. Kind of the same thing we're saying with, like, you know, Taika and Jermaine. It's like you can have these really funny or outlandish ideas, but you do have to find a way to make it structurally work and have some grounding in it. Yeah, um, and there is a structure in this. Totally. Which, I mean, we should get into talking about the editing because I said we were going yeah. to revisit it. Um, but they cut it down from 125 hours to... <laughs> 87 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Which working in documentaries, I can really, really, our uh, Street Fighting Men was like 500 hours of footage. Right? So, yeah, it's a lot to work through. And I think editors are such unsung heroes, especially in comedy and documentaries, because there's just so much footage and different takes. And and yet those fuckers never get to win any Oscars. I know. Even though they're bullshit. like the uh, the most, you know, 
Yeah, they're another for me. They're another version of rewriting. I mean, I've been on shows too, like a show like Damages, which was, you know, very plot driven. But actually, in fact, the showrunners were sometimes one scene would be the only thing that would end up originally written in an episode because it played with flash forward, flashback, Mm -hmm. present. So they were just like, things will change in the editing room, whatever works the best. And that's my attitude too when I go into editing is to try to be like, you know, whatever I may let the editor try stuff and show me because I may not have been thinking about it because I'm so stuck in the way that I saw it versus how it was written or how I saw it performed. But then they're like, oh, that scene that you had way back here is now the first scene. And you're like, wow, that was genius. Yeah. And it's helpful to have those collaborators because like Jermaine and Taika were editing this with a team of three editors. Right. And, you know, they would uh, apparently they would all um, take turns editing. So Mm -hmm. one person would do something and then give the project file and then the next person would start editing and they slowly kind of whittle it down each of them again and again and again over the course of a year and they were they are big believers in movies under 90 minutes yeah which yeah i'm sure i don't know i don't remember how long thor is but i'm sure that (laughs) it's probably longer than that because marvel usually demands like two hours for international stuff right um so people feel like they're getting their money's worth when they pay big bucks for the ticket but yeah they were big believers in it and they even got to uh 85 minutes with a a next edit where they got to even add a new joke in Mm. and um just kind of shorten the credits yeah. I mean, I think you can see like, you know, something like Anchorman, which also did a lot of improv, why there is many cuts of that film and why you can literally purchase totally different versions of that film mm-hmm. is because the same kind of thing where you're just trying different stuff. You have people bringing it. You have Adam McKay yelling jokes off screen, you know, like there's a lot of different ways you can go. I think the hardest part is figuring out what is the very best version. And I agree, like 90 minutes for a comedy, I think is pretty mm-hmm. gold you know, for keeping people's attention and also not being overindulgent with, like, too many bits or too many jokes, which is sometimes really hard because when you're shooting it, there's certain things that you just get really attached to. And I that's what I try to be, like, fearless in the editing room of just, like, kill your babies. <laughs> it's hard. but well, You know, Judd Apatow needs to get <laughs> a little bit tighter, I would say. Yeah, I mean... Stuff. And it's hard, too, because if you have, like, cast and stuff, you're like, oh, I still want this person to be featured, but Mm -hmm. maybe that scene's not working. I think that kind of stuff happens a lot. And it's understandable because you are grateful to the actors for contributing, but sometimes it just doesn't service the story. Yes. Um, I I wanted to get into um, the idea of trying to make a movie or make an idea before anyone else gets to it. Right. Um, Because with this, we have, um, you know, vampires and mockumentary, as we were talking about before, which is like, okay. Right. Um, So Jermaine was saying, when we first suggested the idea, we were like, ah, vampires, that's pretty 70s. And after a while, we were like, ah, vampires are cool now. And then, (laughs) ah, vampires, yeah. Then people started rolling their eyes when you mentioned what you were doing. And eventually it was late enough that people were ready to make fun of vampires again. Yeah. Yeah. I think that timing is interesting because of the whole Twilight, like, you know, of course, I think back to like the Brad Pitt vampire days, but um, then to see Twilight be such a big thing, you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of like, oh, enough of like vampires. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember that. Like people were like, oh, and I remember when what we do in the shadows, like the ads rolled. And it was like vampires. Like yeah. even then, I was, and then I was like, oh, maybe this would be funny. Yeah, I think also the key is just that they always bring such an original point of view to it. Like just in the fact that Jermaine and Taika are such great friends, I think makes for they're able to tell stories maybe that have even been told or people are sick of. But when you see their take on it, it's like. You're still able to, I feel like even if there hadn't been time that passed, at least for me, I would still enjoy it because also the Twilight, like, am I the only person that's like, I like never watched Twilight or like read any of the books. So I've seen the first one. Yeah. So like for me, that wouldn't have been a deterrent because I'm like, yeah, I mean, I see vampires like Vampire Diaries, Twilight, like all of that, but I'm not watching any of it. So yeah. You know, just seeing them play in this world would have been fun for me regardless. But I'm sure they felt pressure from, like, the outside of, like, is this too soon? Is this been enough time that's passed? Are people sick of this? Yeah. I thought it was going to be, like, a dead and loving it kind of thing, too, if you guys (laughs) remember. Yeah. Some people of a certain age who might remember those commercials. (laughs) But they also said that um, someone someone actually did beat them to the punch with 
the idea. Oh, There's a Belgian film in 2010 called Vampires, which is a documentary about vampires. Okay. So. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check it I out. I know. Like, I was reading in an interview, and I was just like, wait. Okay. There's another one? Apparently, obviously, it didn't get big distribution or yeah. anything, um, but they did. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, least. I think it's always hard because, like, sometimes you'll you'll write something or have an idea for something, and then someone does beat you to it, and it's, like, hard to feel, like, uh, all this work I did, <laughs> or, like, is this still something worth pursuing? But I'd say even, like, even referencing, like, the web series, which is, like, about roommates. How many web series are there about roommates? But, like, yeah. I have had so many personal experiences that I'm, like, I know my version of this will be different than, like, other people's. Yeah, you do have to lean into your own things. Yeah. I think about that in terms of, like, Amy's show, too. I For mean, sure. I, it's a... Uh, you know, like these kind of like at home baker types, like they've kind of been lampooned before. Yeah. But There's... how do you do it differently? Yeah. And I think it's a, another example of her. You know, she grew up watching like the Peggy Mann show and local North Carolina shows, these home homemaking shows where people would just kind of go on and not really talk or do much. And she found that really entertaining or the whole episodes about like making a baked Alaska. And like she would always say like even to Paul when we were figuring out how the show was going to work because they, you know, based it on were able to kind of sell the pitch based on the the crafting and um, homemaking books that she has, which do influence the show, but also the show's its whole own narrative thing that's not within the Yeah, I was surprised how far it kind of took that idea and then spun it around and it was very very warped kind of broken mirror version of it yeah so i think that's that combination of her she says you know when she was young like literally watching those shows and being like oh i'm gonna do a show like that someday and so she's had in her head for a long time of doing something like with crafts and cooking and sort of poking fun at the homemaking show although she also really enjoys elements of that yeah but then also us also having to find like how to make that work and and you know, Paul's influences he's bringing into it in the room. and um, But I think having that direct things from real life influencing it mm-hmm. and then finding things that you're inspired by, also like other shows that inspired the show, um, to kind of put those two together is what makes it special, I think. If you just try to do, you know, sometimes you can have a singular vision from a young age, but I think like having other perspectives brought in and but having that always as the basis just is going to make it stand out no matter what because a lot of people are trying to just replicate what they're seeing but mm-hmm. not bringing their own personal experience to it and personal experience is always i find what you know really connects people to it cuz like you're just able to understand certain things that if you haven't experienced it or you haven't seen it and had it in your head for a long time um you're going to make it more original just from that right to start versus being like I like you know sports comedy movies I'm going to do that but I don't know anything about sports I mean you can do that but I just find the best version of it is people who are bringing their own like personal experiences combined with finding it creatively yeah I like thinking about the personal experiences that Taika and Jemaine are bringing to this because you know that they're there oh yeah you know more than just Stu being there it's just like sure there's something about their personalities coming in. Um, We're going to take another break and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Nazi joke and (laughs) the homosexual catcalling joke stuff. Okay, we'll be right back. Hi, it's me, Paula Poundstone. And it's me, Adam Felber. We have a podcast called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. It's a comedy podcast where we bring on experts to teach us stuff we need to know. And, by the way, the guy who came to tell us what to do when you encounter a bear never showed up. Anyway, it's fun. You are guaranteed laughs in every episode. You can't really guarantee laughs. What if somebody doesn't laugh? We'll get sued. Join us for our next episode where we have an expert in consumer law explain to us how to defend ourselves against one humorless litigious shut-in with enough time on their hands to sue us over our unfulfilled claim of guaranteed laughs in every episode here at MaximumFun.org. The Cat of the Week is Mabel from Green Bank, West Virginia. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined today by Katie Tibaldi, and we are talking about what we do in the shadows. Okay, so the Nazi joke. Um, This comes when we're introducing Deacon, essentially. After the war, which the Nazis lost, I don't know if you know that the Nazis lost that war. 
you were a Nazi after the war, and if you were a vampire, and if you were a Nazi vampire, no way. I was out of there. The thing is that, like, they asked an American editor what, like, they thought of the movie, and they were like, ah, uh, that Nazi joke. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think so. So the Americans were like, you should really take that out. And the New Zealanders were like, no, like what? I mean, it's it's poking fun at them, and it's also revealing. Like they were saying that to them, it reveals that for vampires who live forever, you know, like they see, they see Nazis World War Two terrible shit all the time. You know, it's just like a blip in their long, long history of seeing the world devolve into terrible shit. And I was like, it's an interesting perspective, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a big thing in the film about. You know, one of the main through lines is the fact that even when you think Stu's going to die and he's, you know, or you thought he has has died and he's comforting Deacon's comforting Nick, like about his best mate being, you know, uh, killed and sort of his fault because he brings him at the end of the film to this big, you know, vampire, not just vampires, werewolves, all the other and other creatures come together. Um, Like, why would you bring a human to this? Um, He's saying, you know, I've seen so many, you're going to see everyone you care about is going to die in your life because you're going to live forever and you're going to see so much stuff happen and change. Um, That is a big part of the movie. So like for me, I mean, I definitely can understand why it would rub people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. But I also um, understand where they're coming from and being like, this does match kind of what we're saying of like all these people have come from you could say the same for Jermaine's character Mm -hmm. you know he's like tortured people and was at one time this really powerful vampire who did terrible things to people Um, and now is more like a softer version of that partially because he gets his his heart broken by the beast the beast aka Pauline Um, I I think well for Taika said we said that We said we'd see how this feels in America, and it kind of didn't feel very good. We experimented with taking it out, and it was still funny, though, but we found we had nothing to replace it with. And then Jermaine adds, we found it funny, but then a lot of people didn't find it funny. I don't know. People aren't doing Nazis anymore. They're all sensitive about Nazis now. Like, you can't even make fun of them anymore. So it was, you know, like this thing that they kept running up against. And I swear, in every single interview that I read with them someone asks them about the nazi joke and it's it was something that became a little bit of a lightning rod interesting i've never heard that i guess i've just seen much more like offensive directly exactly comedic things and i feel like they actually i mean they're certainly not saying like nazis are good you know like i don't get that uh, sense from it so i guess i've seen things that i feel like much more offended by yeah um than that Uh, I can see, like I said, how it would bother some people, but I also feel like sometimes in interviews, people like to jump on stuff like that just to get, you know, something lightning that's really, if you watch the film, you may feel differently if you actually see it um, and what they're saying about it. So I can understand them also being in a place sometimes where you don't have anything else that works and you are just stuck. Yeah. But yeah, I do feel like people like to jump onto things and make it something when for me, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of other things I could say that are like much more directly offensive and and certainly not saying like, I I don't feel for me personally, when I watch the film, I don't feel like they're being like Nazis. Yay. (laughs) No, you know. And in fact, it's one of those things that makes me think um, like this film putting in a, like this Nazi element, like this joke into it and kind of making fun of the, and like the vampire, I love how he says like, oh, did you know the Nazis lost? Right. And it was just like, oh yeah, it's nothing for him. He's like, well, you know, I did this weird thing and I'm terrible. And it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. The worst. But I think that what I appreciate about that is maybe people, like maybe Nazis had fallen off people's radars for a little while. Do you know right. what I mean? And in this way, it was just like, no, I mean, like, they're kind of relevant, you know, like they, they're they completely relevant in today's world. Yeah. You look at it on. now and versus like then when it came out and, right. you know, it it's fascinating. People were like, oh, no, no Nazi stuff. And it's just like, oh, maybe we should have been talking about this for a long, long time endlessly because they didn't just go away. Exactly. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, but it's I mean, how do you decide how offensive to go? Uh, it's like, a line. It's always a line. And I think it's a line that can be different for every person. Certainly there are some things I'll watch and be like, oh, I wouldn't have kept that in. Um, mm-hmm. Or certain things that you're more 
maybe you've had more personal experiences with like racism or sexism that you're like, you know, I don't want to have that in because that makes the stereotype more true or I want that in because I'm specifically like making fun of like bros or I'm making fun of people who are racist um, or anti-Semitic. So I think for, you know, and certainly sometimes you'll just be forced to cut things because Mm -hmm. you'll get notes from studios or networks that are just like, yeah, you can't have that in. Um, And sometimes there been anything that you've been really sad to part with that um, I feel like. You know, I think it's very hard. Not that I've been personally sad with. I I guess I've been lucky and feel like everything that I really wanted and would fight for, I've been able to keep in. Mm -hmm. But I think there is just, you know, you hear comedians nowadays talk a lot about being overly PC Mm, and all of that. And I think for me, I guess I feel like a lot of it, um, there's always so much to make fun of in the world. I'm not really that concerned of like... Um, running out of things to make fun of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like some in some things it's good that, you know, we've moved past um, certainly like very homophobic things or very um, sexist things. Mm-hmm. But also like you're saying, and I think you could argue with the Nazi joke in the film is like bringing attention to things that are real in real life. And like certainly there are right now in this country people who, you know, I do identify with Nazis and yeah. saying like, hey, these are people who were just one day a person and then the next day they were a Nazi, yeah. you know, and afterwards they were still a person. Yeah. So reconciling that I think is something that... Um, and Americans' first urge is to just erase the Nazi from the movie, which yeah. I think is a very interesting, you know, cultural take on, on yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I think even if you look at like a lot of, you know, like Spike Lee's work, which I'm a fan of, like you can see elements where he pushes things that people are offended on either side. But like, yeah. I think sometimes he's trying to say like no I'm going to present things like from my point of view and also like things that really happen that are uncomfortable that people don't want to talk about things that are just problematic in the way that they exist in the world yeah absolutely physical comedy is something that I want to get into too because I mean if we're talking about um, you know physical comedy has a a very kind of old-timey feel to me, and I appreciate it when I see it because I feel like we're so talky with comedy so often, which is great. That's fine, but I also love slapstick. You know, there's me certain too. things that just make me laugh because they're they look funny. Yes, and if you look at someone like Amy Sedaris Genius too, at physical comedy, the, the way that she kind of contorts her body. I mean, like Strangers with Candy is the most physical, yes, com- comedic performance that I could think of. Yeah, you know, she's In truly she's era. truly a wonder at physical comedy so are some of the other people we have on our show um dave pasquese who you may know from veep and Mm -hmm. other things is also truly just one one of the best improvers in the world but also such a great actor who's so good at physical comedy and just really goes for it and Quilla Scuola the same thing the three of them together um, seeing them in a scene is like watching magic because even if they're doing everything as scripted they're always going to bring physical aspects to it that you could never anticipate um, Mm -hmm. that are just such a gift and I do feel like American comedy a lot of times when Physical comedy is done. It's very like what you would expect, um, which is one of the reasons I love like British comedy so much because Mm -hmm. there's much more physical comedy done in a way that um, either they just like fully embrace it or just done in a way that's more subtle. And I feel like we don't get as much subtle physical comedy here, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly like there's a TV show. I love Miranda Hart, the comedian who's British, and she had a show called Miranda. um, That's a BBC show. And she's she's a very tall woman, which is not something you see that often, particularly in comedy. And she leans so much into physical comedy on her show, and it Mm -hmm. makes me so happy. And I love that with Amy, too. I mean, really, when she gets on set and she's inhibiting these different characters, whether it's like an old woman or whether it's, you know, um, she plays like a young childlike figure or Mm -hmm. whether she's playing um, a southern lady. She always is thinking about, like, how am I sitting? How am I walking? How am I moving? How am I moving my eyebrows? And it just brings such, I think anyone who's truly my favorite comedians always brings a physical aspect to well, it. Well, like Carol Burnett going back yes. to that too. The, uh, do, you, do you guys end up writing physical comedy for them? Or? Sometimes, okay. yeah. Sometimes we do and sometimes it's things that they just bring or when we're writing, a lot of times we're reading the scenes out um, or Amy will have specific, like, for example, the character she plays, Ronnie Vino, on the show, who's like the regional wine lady. Mm-hmm. Um, she does this little song that's, you know, now people really like. It's Friday night. I'm gonna get drunk. I'm gonna get laid. I'm gonna be late on Monday 
she just came into the room with it. And when you see her do it, it is just like <laughs> no one else could do that song. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just the way she she knew she wanted to like perfectly move in a circle and kind of have one foot grounded as she's doing it. And the way she's swinging her arms and the way she's moving her head and the way she's saying it um, just make it totally unique to her in a way that I really don't think anyone else could do. And that's just such an honor to watch, honestly. <laughs> um, and also just like so wonderful to have performers that lean into like physicality and are, are thinking about the way that like I would say the same thing of Cole who plays, you know, Chassie Tucker, a woman on her show and the way that he moves when he's playing that character, like he's very much thinking about how she moves her head, how she walks, you know, like we always joke that she has hoofs for feet because of the way that (laughs) he'll like walk with her. Um, And yeah, Amy's definitely someone that I think she, when she's playing it, she's always just thinking of the physical ways that she's going to inhabit the character to make it seem real to her. Um, Well, Thank you so much for coming over and talking about this movie and your work. And it's so nice to reconnect with you. (laughs) I know. Yes. So Um, many years later. Elementary school reunions. Everyone (laughs) should see what we do in the shadows if you haven't. It's so good. (laughs) And um, they can see... at Home with Amy Sedaris is on currently on True TV every Tuesday at 10, 9 central. And then Seeking Sublet is going to be... Seeking Sublet, you can watch on Funny or Die. Currently there's like 25 sketches and we'll have nine episodes later this year. Maybe on Funny or Die or somewhere else, but we have a website, SeekingSublet.net. And then um, Street Fighting Man, our film, will be out later this year with uh, First Run Features. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And we should also let people know that what we do in the shadows has been made into a television series, and it will premiere on the FX network on March 27th. It's being produced by Jemaine and Taika, I think, are executive producers, but the series will feature a different cast than the 2014 film. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. We've got one today from Go Find Me a Username Yourself. It's clever. Uh, they say it's hard enough to find movie podcasts hosted by women, but but even harder to find one about horror. Women who love horror are always seen as oddities, but I've loved it all my life, and now I know I'm not alone. This podcast has given me insight into why horror speaks to me and other women, as well as teaching me about writing, storytelling, cinematography, directing, acting, and giving me a view of the film industry I didn't have before. It's a podcast by and for women. Sometimes it's feminist, but mostly it's a fresh and well-informed look at a movie I have often haven't seen or would have disregarded. If you like movies that are dark and strange and want to hear more from fans and creators alike, I highly recommend this podcast. Thank you so much. Go find me a username yourself. Just a reminder that the Max Fun Drive starts on March 18th. Make sure to keep an eye out for new announcements and to find out where you can donate to the show. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com com slash groups slash switchblade sisters our producer is casey o'brien our senior producer is laura swisher and this is a production of maximumfun.org what are we maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned listener supported